everyone, and welcome to season four of World of Sharks, the official podcast of the Save Our Seas Foundation. Hello and welcome to those of you who are new here, and welcome back to you shark nerds who have been here before. If you like sharks in the oceans, you are definitely in the right place. Every episode, we chat to experts in the field of shark and marine science, conservation, education, and storytelling to ask them everything you've ever wanted to know about our cartilaginous friends and the place that they call home. Oh, and I'm your host, Isla, marine scientist and science communicator for the Foundation. If you are a regular listener, you'll know that something we like to do on this podcast is debunk popular myths about sharks. We've talked before about how sharks are often incorrectly portrayed and perceived as these mindless, man-eating machines. While there have been incidences where humans have been bitten by sharks, and sometimes that does have serious consequences, we can't shy away from that, science has proven that these are very rare and they're mostly accidental. Cases of mistaken identity or the result of many ecological, biological, and behavioral factors kind of all working together. But the term shark attack, I'm using that in quotation marks here, which implies that the shark has the intention to hurt or even hunt a human, still permeates in modern culture. We're still seeing that trope in Hollywood films and in the way the media portrays human-shark interactions, which can both influence public perception. The impact of the blockbuster Jaws on shark conservation, public perception, and even policymaking has been studied since its release in 1975. But today, we're looking even further back in time to understand where the idea of sharks as man-eating monsters first came from and how it gained traction to where we are today. It's a fascinating story involving Victorian game hunters, shark rabies, angry letters flying around the world, Hollywood soundtracks designed to make your heart race, and an Australian surgeon who decided to try his hand at marine biology. To walk us through all of this, we have an amazing guest today who has pieced all of these puzzle pieces together, Dr. Chris Pepin-Neff. Chris is a senior lecturer in public policy at the University of Sydney and a Save Our Seas project leader who has dedicated their career to understanding and changing the framing around shark bite incidents. They are particularly interested in how the public and policymakers respond to emotional issues, including shark bites, and have published some incredibly interesting and groundbreaking research in journals like Biology, Conservation Letters, and Marine Policy that examine public attitudes following a shark bite incident and ways to improve communication about beach safety and the risks of human-shark interactions, which we get into in this episode. Chris has also published a fantastic book, Flaws, Shark Bites and Emotional Public Policymaking, which compares three different policy responses to tragic shark bites in Florida, Australia and South Africa, and also explores in depth the flaws in our relationship and perceptions of sharks. It's a super interesting read and I would highly recommend getting the book if you can. I'll leave links to it along with all of Chris's work in the show notes on the World of Sharks website. Chris's research has also been featured in the likes of The New Yorker, The Washington Post, The New York Times and The Guardian and they are not only a brilliant writer but also a phenomenal speaker as well as you'll find out in this episode. 
Chris walks us through the history of the man-eater trope, takes us on a deep dive into the clever marketing of Jaws, and how we can improve our communication around human-shark interactions by paying attention to intentionality. We'll explain what that is later on. We also discuss policy responses to shark bite incidents and how sometimes the real villains of the story are the politicians. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. I'm sure you will. Chris is so incredibly passionate about what they do. And although we talk about some serious incidents in this episode, it's also really funny and super hopeful as well. Okay, without further ado, grab your popcorn and let's dive in to our episode. Hello, Chris, and welcome to the World of Sharks podcast. Hello, I'm thrilled to be here. We are so happy to have you, and I'm very excited to have this conversation. But before we dive into the framing around shark attacks and the politics and the history, we like to start and end the podcast with the same question for every single guest. And our first question is one that I've learned from the beginning is quite a difficult one for anyone who works around the marine space or who generally loves the ocean. It's a difficult question for them to answer. And that is, do you have an experience with the ocean that stands out for you as particularly memorable? So the answer is yes. For me, you know, the ocean is probably very close to one of the defining places of my life. And you know, I remember something, I I think my mom had died. Like there was something that was quite bad that had happened. And I found myself in the ocean with the waves at my back, you know, sort of coming over my shoulders and the sun was setting and I was just surrounded by such serenity and such beauty and such power and such frailty, you know, and I just remember thinking that, there is peace in chaos, you know, that the ocean gives you both, you know, it gives you peace and it brings total madness and it doesn't, but there's, it doesn't ask for an apology. It's not asking, you know, it just is what it is. And it's, and so for me, the ocean has always been a place of real solace and, and, and for me, it's been peace. It hasn't been madness, but, but it brings both. And maybe, maybe I find peacefulness in the madness, madness, like maybe that's it. But, um, but I remember this one day of, you know, the sun is just setting and the ocean looks perfect. And, and I just was, you know, transcending the, you know, the world. And I, I just, and for me, it's always that whenever I go, whenever I travel, I go, sorry, this is a long answer. Whenever I go and travel, I'll um, submerge myself in the ocean, wherever, which, whatever ocean I'm in, whether it's the Indian Ocean, the Atlantic, the Pacific, um, wherever I am. And that's sort of when I know I'm home. Like when I've, mm. when I've like gone and I'm floating on the surface of the ocean, that's when I have my, my, uh, my moment of Zen. Yeah. Oh, that's so beautiful. And I I mean, I can definitely resonate with that. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners can, is that the ocean is there for us in times when there's a reason people call it therapy. Seeking out the ocean to in times when your life is chaotic, 
and you need solace and you need peace. There's a reason why people, you know, submerge themselves in water to get away from all of the noise that's in your head, right? It takes you away from that completely. When you said that you feel when you're at home, when you're the first time you go into the ocean, wherever you are in the world, I can definitely resonate with that as well. I do desperately seek it out wherever I go. It's very odd, isn't it? Like, even if I don't go to the ocean a lot, but just knowing it's there and being in a coastal harbor city, just, I feel so much better being, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe it's the escape. Like, you know, there's always a, like, I don't know what it is, but you're not confined to like a flat, you know, piece of dirt somewhere you know you 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 can always dive in the ocean somewhere Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and I do I I did also really like the idea that you know that the ocean itself can be chaos it's incredibly powerful and uh, but that in itself is a comfort weirdly enough and I can't put my finger on why (laughs) but maybe I don't have to maybe we don't have to it's just it is what it is it's just such a such a comfort and such an amazing thing to have there so you are a political scientist and I wondered if you could explain to our listeners what that means and what does that mean in the context of of sharks as well so when I came I'll I'll use a couple examples so in 2012 I was in uh, Cape Town at the Sabre Seas Foundation at the Shark Center and we were having this conversation about you know, how much pride does the local population have in sharks? And and that was kind of a weird way to put it, right? It's not how much support did they have. Scientists would say how much endemic value, right? Like um, how much um, value do you have at the local things, whether it's the grain that you grow or the sheep that you cultivate or the fish in your local community. Like that's sort of endemic value is sort of like it's one of those conservation type phrases, and so I said to the Sabre Seas folks, I said, well, so I think we should do a study that measures um, the level of pride people have toward local shark populations. And they said, okay, good. So I went out to Musenberg, uh, to the local IGA, like the or Woolworths or the local grocery store. And I stood out front with a clipboard. I mean, I... I should pause. I went through ethics at the University of Sydney and got everything <laughs> approved and did all the things that you're supposed to do. But it was around this question of um, what's the level of pride that people have in sharks and is that affected when bad things happen? Uh, so we did a measure of the baseline of uh, at Musenberg and Fishhook um, of the support for sharks and the local shark population. And then I flew back to Australia and I'm in Sydney. And then there was a very serious uh, shark bite that happened at Fishhook. So I got back on the plane and flew back to Fishhook, right? The beach that I'd done the survey at and went to Fishhook and went to Musenberg again and surveyed the same questions, but a second time within 10 days of the incident having happened. And that's quite a dynamic environment to be in, right? So something, shark bites don't just affect the individual or the family. They affect communities, particularly beachside communities, and can be really traumatizing. So you need to, um, you, it's, it's delicate and careful, and you want to be incredibly respectful of, of the people involved. So 
It's not gratuitous. I guess that's the point I'm making. So I went back to the convenience store, back to the grocery store in Musenberg, back to the one in Fishhook, did the survey a second time. And then the most really astounding data came out of it. And it showed that there was no change. There was no statistical connection between people's perceptions of sharks and the occurrence of a shark bite at that beach. People and sharks have come to a point where people recognize that accidents of nature happen, but they don't hold it against the lightning. You know what I mean? Lightning strikes happen, you don't blame the lightning. Shark bites happen, you don't blame the shark. Trees fall, you don't blame the tree. You know, like those kinds of things. And it was the first the first study that's ever been done of its kind in the world, um, and no one's ever duplicated it. Uh, it's really hard to do, and you, you know, and you don't wish it on anyone. Like obviously, you don't want shark bites. But in this case, we had just happened to have done the baseline study and then did the follow up study. But then the results that came out of it were sort of groundbreaking research. So that's like one of the questions that I ask: is what is the role of a shark bite in the way people think about sharks and the answer is not very much like it's not a variable and that opened up a whole new universe of testing around what i talk about now as sort of shark perceptions research that you know if it isn't that then what is it and where where are we in the human relationship with sharks that mm. we've come to a point where that it's not the defining feature of the relationship. And that is historic because you would have thought that people's exposure to sharks and the media attention and the movies and all of these things are sort of conspiring against sharks in this dramatic way that it doesn't always, I'm not saying it can't, I'm just saying it's not always the defining feature. Yeah, because you would have totally expected, you know, from a shark bite incident, you'd have totally expected people to have maybe, especially just 10 days after that incident to have, you know, some sort of negative reaction to that or, but but no, and it's it's utterly fascinating. And for listeners who, who aren't familiar, Musenberg and Fishhook are, Uh, towns along False Bay which is like the iconic place to see well it used to be we've talked about this on the podcast as well but it used to be the place to see white sharks and white sharks famously you know same thing in Australia you know these are are seen as these big powerful predators and are what people think of when they think of the word shark and I often think of them as you know where the source of uh, well the source of fear or when people associate fear with sharks, they think of something like a white shark. They're not going to think of a, a cute little shy shark that curls up into a donut when it's when it's scared, you know? Um, so, you know, it's utterly, utterly fascinating. And that's why I was so excited to have you on and sort of dig a little bit deeper into, into the, this terminology and into these patterns of attitudes and behavior and responses to... We, I keep wanting to say shark attack and that's really bad of me. I'm not going to say that. But when we use the phrase shark attack in this podcast, we're putting it in quotation marks. What we should be saying is shark bite or shark incident. 
Um, and what we're referring to here is just human shark interactions where human and sharks have come into contact with one another. And sometimes that has negative consequences for one or either party, unfortunately. I wanted if we could to sort of pivot into your work on uh, the discourse around shark attacks and putting that in quotation marks. Um, and your 2013 paper, Science Policy and the Public Discourse of Shark Attack, you identify three labels that stand out through history that have been used to describe sort of negative human shark interactions. So mainly where, you know, humans have either been bitten or there's been a fatality. And two of these are man-eater and rogue shark, which both have fascinating histories behind them and I wondered if you could talk us through the histories of those terms. So the rogue shark theory has become a bit of a passion for me. It's, it's, this is a very odd story. Prepare yourselves. It's invented in the late 1930s and then sort of named in the 40s and 50s. And there's a big book that comes out in 1950 by Sir Victor Copelson. Who is, a, who is a surgeon, he's a medical surgeon, at the University of Sydney, where I work. <laughs> and so he had gone away. So World War I happens, and he goes off and fights. And he's in Europe. And then he comes back to Australia in about 1929. And in 1929, in Australia... Uh, it's important to remember that people don't start swimming in most places until the turn of the century. So 1902, people will really start bathing during the daylight hours. Now, in 1903, 1904, people are starting to swim. In that recreational swimming becomes a thing in the daylight hours, um, really in, the, in this period of the early 1900s which is why you don't really have a lot of shark bites before then. If you do, it's probably relegated to a boat, right? A boat is um, throwing garbage or waste over the side of the boat so the sharks are there and then they throw somebody overboard or somebody falls. And there's a famous case in Lubbock, Maine, uh, in um, in the eighteen in the late 1800s, I think it's 1890, where somebody is um, thrown, or somebody jumps into do something and gets bitten by a great white. But anyway, the point is that the rogue shark theory is predicated on the belief that people in, are intentionally bitten by sharks, that sharks, these man-eaters, have a taste for human flesh. And that dates, sorry, I'm going to jump around here, to 1899 in the British Medical Journal because in Port Said in uh, Egypt, there are two incidents that happen on the same day in the same body of water. And in the British Medical Journal, which is again, this is like ivory, ivory tower, right? People trust doctors. So the British Medical Journal says there are two cases of shark bite that have happened on the same day at the same beach. And then it says in bold at the bottom, it is presumed that this is the same shark. Um, so that happens. And it's also important to remember that in the late 1890s, this is also the period of like the big game hunter and safaris and 
uh, you know, hunting Bengal tigers and elephants. And it's sort of this universe of rogue elephants and rogue lions and rogue tigers. And now you've got a case of shark bite. So that all, it's all in the, it's all in the cultural gestalt of the period, right? That, that animal behavior can be classified into these few very small boxes. You've got normal behavior and then you've got rogue behavior, rogue elephants, rogue tigers, rogue lions, rogue sharks. So when Victor Coppelson, when he comes back to Australia in 1929, he starts a project uh, to gather information about shark behavior from across Australia. So he starts a letter writing campaign to newspaper editors, asking them to send clippings. It's like Google, but through the mail, right? So he, he says, I'm looking for this, cases of shark bite. Can you send me your clippings of shark bite cases? So he sends it to about 80 newspapers around the world. So like a really, a really slow Google, essentially. Really slow Google. <laughs> now, while this is going on, he starts a correspondence with an American named Horace Mazette. When the big game hunters would need their story told, they would hire Horace to write the books. Oh, he's the, he's the guy, if you want... He's the yeah, guy. Okay. And so he writes to Victor Coppelson because Horace Mazette is in a fight with the American researchers because there's that case in 1916, the New Jersey case, where there are a number of people who are fatally bitten. And the head of the U.S. museums, it's, it's going to later become a Smithsonian, but it's not quite there yet, says that he doesn't think it's a shark that bit these people. He thinks it's a barracuda or it's something else because sharks don't bite north of the Caribbean. So it can't be a shark. Interesting. But Horace Mazette gets it in his head. He's like, once, it, once like a shark is caught and there's evidence that the shark was involved, Horace Mazette gets it in his head that the shark from 1916 has shark rabies. And because he's a this big game hunter, illustrator, storyteller, he gets the story about okay. shark rabies. So he starts sending letters to Victor Coppelson who, about shark rabies and says to Victor Coppelson that he needs to prove to the world that sharks attack because there's this fight between researchers that's going on and, and maybe sharks don't bite north of the Caribbean and all these different things. So Victor Coppelson says, okay. And writes him back. And I've been to the to the Coppelson archives at the New South Wales Library and gone through the letters from Horace to Victor and back. Victor Coppelson doesn't use the phrase shark rabies. He uses the phrase rogue shark. And that's where it comes from. And that's its lineage. Is it sort of situated again in this period? So that's where yeah, rogue it, shark comes from. That's fascinating because the... The 1916, the shark attacks around 1916, that was believed to be a bull shark, was it? I believe so, because it came in awfully close to the, sh to the fresh water, would had to have been a bull shark. Yeah, which, which they do, because um, they can kind of cross brackish waters. But, uh, and, it, and it was found with the evidence that you're talking about was it was found with human remains in its, in its belly, unfortunately. That's um, but yeah, such a, a, what I find fascinating is, is A, it wasn't believed that sharks could bite people 
you know, that far north, which I find really fascinating. But then also the idea that this, you know, this kind of rogue behavior is when the animal's doing something that it really shouldn't be doing, which is, you know, either biting people or coming into contact with people. And it's seen as so unusual that it's thought to to have rabies, which is just, yeah, mad. So that, that idea of the shark is behaving in a way that's not normal for the shark at that time. But then we sort of kind of move into this phase of seeing that behavior as premeditated or the shark is doing that because it has a taste for human flesh or they start to become these kind of vicious killers who are very intelligent and sort of know where humans are and are actively seeking them out. And I'm interested to know kind of how that changed from being a, you know, a slightly unusual behavior. The sharks may be sick, it's got something wrong with it to something that sharks do and then this you know the the term shark attack or the idea of it being an attack which kind of gives you this sense of it's got a purpose it's intentional when do we start to see that become popular so we start to see shark attack rise in popularity in the late 1930s Because it's important to note that before the 1930s, not only were sharks not seen to bite people north of the Caribbean, they were also referred to in many books and the literature and newspapers and things as shark accidents. Like a beach Mm. accident. It's a shark accident. And so there's this war of words that's going on between different people and shark attack um when victor coppelson writes he, he he gathers all the newspaper articles together right and he writes something for the australian medical journal and he says at the end of his article it finishes with the evidence that sharks will attack man is complete it's quite a statement for a scientific paper <laughs> it's you know from a surgeon who's not a shark who's not a marine biologist so these this human surgeon is looking at shark behavior, comes up with the phrase shark attack, and then defines abnormal shark attacks as rogue sharks. You know, deconstructing that is very difficult over time because shark attack takes off. And when the Navy ran a shark investigation file, what what would become the, the international shark attack file, and they had a big symposium in New Orleans in 1958. This was sort of a post- World War II Pacific Theater Conference about um, the way the military should be talking about sharks. And shark attack makes it in there as the biggest category. And then there's boat attack and uh, sort of air disaster and things like that that come in there. But shark attack is reinforced in 1958 by by this big conference uh, in New Orleans. Then it remains uncontested. I mean, because this is also the thing, right? It's like, how does shark attack get in there? And that's, I told you how it gets in there. And then the question is, who's around to contest that sharks attack people? And it's very interesting because the the next contestations really happen from David Baldrich, who was the founding uh, scientist at the Moat Marine Lab. He starts it in Sarasota, Florida. Mm-hmm. Because what he does is very, very interesting. He starts testing everything else that Victor Coppelson said. So Victor Coppelson is sort of the one who comes up with this sharks 
behavior is this way during this water temperature and this during this water temperature. And Baldrige goes through them and starts disproving them in the late 1970s, like 78, 79, starts disprove, disproving Victor Koppelson in the late 70s, and, uh, and that happens. Then McCosker and Trickus come out with their article on shark bite misidentification, right? That it's in, that it's, um, they think it's a seal in 1984 in the Journal of, uh, what is it? The California Academy of Social Sciences Journal uh, in 84. And then McCosker follows it up in 85. Then um, Samuel Gruber puts out a really uh, well-respected article in 86, 87, and, and he basically concludes that um, that shark bites are a biological failure. That that if you look at the the proportion of fat to the so which which for sharks is energy, right? So it's just energy. Mm-hmm. So the amount of energy a shark gets from a human versus the amount of energy that they expend on biting the human, it doesn't make any biological sense. Like it's, they don't get enough from it. It's a biological failure for, for sharks to bite humans. Samuel Gruber says that, and that sort of begins this contest. So David Baldrich, Trickison McCosker, uh, Sam Gruber begin contesting it. And then I put that together with Bob Huter and Bob Huter, who was then the director of the Moat Marine Lab in Sarasota. And I know that because I went and saw Bob. That's where I found David Baldrich's stuff in the files. So it's all one little happy family. So then Bob and I work on this article looking at the discourse around shark bites. And, you know, and and Bob's point is like, I've been contesting this for years, but, but as a marine biologist who was struggling to, to make a media dent, basically, like he was, and he was well respected, and all of these things. But like changing the discourse around shark bites is a uh, is complicated if you have an actual day job on shark mm-hmm. behavior. So then, Christine Ward Page at Sharks International in uh, Cannes in 2010 pulls me aside. We're getting in a car, we're going to a restaurant, and she goes, "Like, don't you think?" that it's not a shark attack. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, you, you, this is what you do. And I was like, yeah, this, this is what I do. And she goes, shark attack doesn't really make any sense scientifically. And I said, that's, that's true. And so I took that, like from that car ride, mm-hmm. I'm, that's my career. That's my life for the next 17, you know, uh, for my, all the work that I've done, um, is, you know, in allegiance to Christine and, and Sam Gruber and Trickus McCosker and David Baldrich Mm -hmm. and, and Bob Huter. Like, um, I've been, this is why I say I've kind of gotten, you know, you know, luck keeps knocking on my door. Um, and I'm smart enough to answer it every once in a while. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think I've been the right person at the right time, but I'm always happy if there's anyone listening and they want to come join. It's, you know, I'm I'm always looking for more folks to work with. Yeah, but I mean, you say, you say, you, you know, open the door to luck and things, but 
you know, the papers that you've published and, you know, you've also got a book out as well called Flaws, which is absolutely fantastic. You know, it's kind of really, there was obviously a lot of discussion around, you know, we shouldn't be calling these shark attacks. That's not actually what they are. You know, this is, you know, very much a case of, you know, even back in 1949, there was an author called C.B. Maxwell, I believe it was, who, I mean, I read this in one of your papers, but um, she stated that we should be calling them shark accidents. And that was in 1949. So, you know, this conversation has been going on for a long time, but I feel like, especially with your work as well, it's sort of brought it more into the the public sphere, which is what those scientists were saying, is that they were struggling kind of to get it out there. Um, but, you know, that that's kind of what was going on in the scientific literature. Also, just as a side note, how wild it is, how wild science used to be in that you could, you know, be a medical surgeon who was just like, I have a theory on this and then publish a, a whole paper and the peer reviewers weren't like, hang on a minute, not sure on your methodology on this. Um, but we kind of, we can't really talk about, you know, the, the term shark attack without also looking at what was going on in the media at the time. And we also have, we do have to bring up Jaws, which is, you know, often painted as the catalyst for why our, you know, public perceptions of sharks became so negative and why this idea of sharks as these kind of mindless man killers sort of really took hold. Um, and I mean, I, I, I think I read somewhere, I can't remember if it was in one of your papers or if it was in a different article, but there is a little anecdote that I read where when Jaws came out in the cinema, it had the same effect that The Exorcist did. So there were people being dragged out of the cinema, screaming shark and having to be taken to, you know, uh, to hospital because they were basically having a panic attack, um, which is which is so extreme. But um, I was interested to know, because obviously there was a lot of these kind of, this discussion happening before Jaws came out, that do you think that Jaws really did, you know, was the catalyst for a lot of that kind of public perception? Or do you think it was just kind of like the cherry on top of what was already being discussed at the time? I would say that it's post-Jaws, pre-Jaws. That's the whole universe of shark research and shark perception and all of it. It's all, you know, uh, pre-Jaws, post-Jaws. When Jaws came out, I mean, and I don't know if everyone knows this, maybe everyone does, but so it had a million dollar budget for marketing which was the most that had ever been spent. Remember, it's the first summer blockbuster. Um, So it had a million dollars and they spent every penny around um, this thing that they called Jaws Consciousness. And it was designed to scare people. The music, the, the voice, the not seeing the shark for the first start of the, you know what I mean? The start of the film and all of these things to build tension and whatnot. Um, the pacing of the music, the dunun. So the dunun, right, is paced based on the heartbeat. So it's dunun, 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 right? So it's based on that. So it, it, I read a journal article in, the, I don't know if it's a journal of music or what it was, but it, do, it looks at the cadence of heartbeats. Um, then Jane Cantor, uh, C-A-N-T-O-R, writes a journal article on on uh, movie nightmares of the 80s based on horror movies. And Jaws, I think, is second to whether it's The Exorcist or Hellraiser or Freddy or whatever it is. And so there's a whole literature around nightmares that are created from this and how the nightmares 
uh, simulate PTSD for a lot of people over a long period of time that you, you, you know, when you're a little kid and you like, you, you still have flashes of your nightmares maybe from before. And if you've got sort of a sociological, um, commitment to reenacting the Jaws music the, for 40 years, you know what I mean? Whether it's Shark Week or other, or National Geographic or any of it, um, mm-hmm. you, and it just, in it, it, and I'm not saying it's all intentional. I'm saying that there's a, there is a system of tropes that are used to encompass the way we communicate about sharks and it includes scary music. And there are people like there are, there's a great, great, I went to a presentation at the uh, American Alaska Society um, and I forget who it is and I'm terrible about this, but what he did was he, he made two, he covered the same documentary. One, he used the music from the documentary, which was a bit scary, like the old Jaws-ish. Yeah like ominous eerie eerie and ominous exactly and then in the second one he played like elevator music and it was sort of like (laughs) and then he measured public sentiment towards sharks based on that difference and it was profound and it was statistically significant and all these things and so i have proven that the occurrence that public perceptions about sharks is independent of a shark bite at the beach and he has proven that dinner music played over the top of a shark documentary will affect the way it, the way people respond to sharks you know a lot more people watch shark documentaries than go to a fish hook right so so you end up in a scenario where where it's not just jaws it's the echo of jaws that affects public sensibility um and it affects policymaking. So, for instance, after Jaws came out, in about in and remember, it's Jaws one, then Jaws two, then Jaws three, then Jaws four. Uh, there's a change in the fisheries laws in the United States in 1983 that changed sharks from like valuable fish to a classification referred to as waste fish. So you're, you're allowed to catch as many as you want to, kill as many as you want to, starting in 1983. And that's a policy response because of JAWS. Mm, wow. Okay. I mean, obviously, I work in shark conservation, so it's it's going to make... But the, the term waste fish makes me more uncomfortable than the term like man killer or rogue shark does. Um, that's like a horrible way to refer to a living thing. But but yeah, and I mean, we, we see it still even now. I think... I, I I mean I won't say the name of the the actual very popular, no very famous week, but they were still you know there was programs called serial I think it was something in the, the mind of a serial killer, or something and that was even last that was even last year right so we are still like you say we're still falling into those tropes we have these still we're still having films released now forty seven meters down is is one that springs to mind or the one with um. Blake Lively as a surfer. That one was quite recent. The, the reef? Something something along those lines. She looks very beautiful throughout the whole film while being terrorized by this massive shark, um, which is looks like a white shark to me. So the you know, the the media has 
has had a huge impact, especially, you know, Jaws as well. And, and they didn't intend that to happen either, I don't think. They wanted it to be, you know, it's, it's a masterclass in how to create, you know, a, a perfect horror suspense film. And I think that's what they were going for. But, you know, both um, the author of the book, Peter Benchley, and Steven Spielberg have come out later and been like, we did not intend this to have the impact on shark conservation that it did. Um, and I think they feel quite bad about it now. But you, you kind of touched on the policy responses there um, to things like Jaws, but also um, something else that you've researched is some of the policy responses to shark bites. So when there's been you know, incidents where you've had repeated bites in, in one area. Um, and there were quite quite a few of those incidents in the 1950s and 1970s. Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, there are a bunch of locations. And it's important to remember, right, that when you have a cluster of shark bites, there's something ecological going on in that space, right? Whether there's a lot of bait fish or a lot of seals or a water temperature, or current, or sunny days, and more brings brings more people into the water. Right. The number the number one factor about the number of shark bites is not the number of sharks. It's the number of sunny days in a summer. That's your number one dependent variable on whether or not you're going to have shark bites. So anyway, so. There are a lot of things that happen. So in the 1950s, you've got places like Durban in uh, South Africa that have uh, a really bad period of time. Um, you've got Australia where you've had a bunch of them in, in the U.S. where there are a bunch, even leading up to 2001 in the summer of the shark, right, where there are some beaches that have 11 shark bites in one day, but they're, they're really very, 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 very minor, like small bites. People are like putting duct tape over the shark bite and going back in the water. And again, it's important to note that that these types of incidents um, are largely based on human behavior. If you listed all the ecological conditions and the human variables that are introduced into the wild, you end up with a quite different narrative about what is going on. And the narrative that what this is, is that sharks have a taste for human blood and are going to know where we are and they know what we are and then they, they want to kill us is the serial killer movie monster myth, you know, doesn't stack up to a sort of honest ecological analysis of what happens when land animals go in the ocean in large numbers. But in terms of what some of the the policy responses have been to these kinds of um, you know like the cluster incidents, as you say, and there's 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 ecological reasons behind them. But in your book, Flaws, you actually compare three case studies, the three different kind of responses, if you like, to these kind of incidents. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about these. Sure. Um, so shark bite policymaking is actually a really diverse endeavor. So I wrote this book, Flaws, which is called Flaws, Shark Bites, and Emotional Public Policymaking. And 
to do it, I did uh, a giant compendium of every policy response to shark bites that had ever that we could document, going back to um, Split in Croatia in uh, the 1900s as well. And in the three cases that are outlined in flaws, so I look at Sydney and look at, uh, I think it's aerial patrols, which is a, it's a scam. The summer of the shark in 2009 in Sydney, and there's a series of incidents. There's one Paul de Gelder at uh, Sydney Harbor. He's an able seaman, Paul de Gelder, who, who's bitten by bull sharks and loses an arm and a leg. There's Andrew Lindop at Avalon Beach, and there's Glenn Orgius at Bondi Beach. And uh, it's important to note that at Bondi and Avalon, on those nights, there are shark nets in the water that do absolutely nothing. So there is all this pressure that's placed on the government to come up with an answer. And in the middle of all of this, the minister is under review for corruption. So the minister throws money at aerial patrols, which at the time in 2009 are suspect because you wouldn't have drones. We have, we're using helicopters usually. And um, helicopters only work if it's the right lighting and no clouds and the right shark at the right size on the, on the surface of the water all at the same time when the helicopter is flying over and the people are in the water all at the same time. So it's really hard to make aerial patrols work. Drone technology is much better now today. In the case of Sydney, it was sort of just money to quiet down a difficult period of time politically. And, and that's really the takeaway from the book is that the sharks in flaws are the politicians, not the fish. That's what the politics of shark attacks is. It's about how politicians are the sharks. And, and then when I look at Cape Town, I look at the start of the shark spotter program, which is probably the world's most progressive, effective uh, shark bite mitigation program, something that was really well put together. And that, that followed a terrible incident with Tina Webb, who was a 71-year-old woman in Cape Town who was swimming and was unfortunately uh, killed by a shark. And... But the community rallied and put together a whole plan of action and started started the the project up on its own, where they, um, where the surf school would pay um, the car guards, which is if you're in Cape Town, there's usually like um, uh, local people who will watch your car and you give them a dollar, five dollars, whatever it is, and they watch your car. Well, anyway, in this case, the local surf school asked the car guards, which are uh, seated up top the hill on the hilltop, the cliff top mm-hmm. to look out. And if they saw a shark to call the, the surf director who had his cell phone in a Ziploc bag taped to the surfboard. Um, and if he got a phone call to the phone from the phone number of the car guard, he knew there was a shark and which is just genius and amazing. And yeah. So he he does, that's the second case, which is a much better case than the first one where 
you know, you've got uh, $100,000 going to aerial patrols that don't work. In, in the third example, which I'll just say very briefly was in Florida, and it was around the banning of shark feeding ecotourism in Florida, mm. which didn't really exist in Florida, but it's kind of like one of those things where like a state will ban gay marriage in a state where it's already banned gay marriage. Like then they come in and they do it again, like just for effect. Uh, And so in this case, they banned eco shark tourism, which they didn't really have. And it was banned because there was a two very different, but large streams of shark bite stories that summer, one involving a young man named Jesse and the other, this sort of the eleven in, the eleven shark bites at, at New Smyrna Beach, Florida, in one day. Again, very very small. They had a surf tournament on top of a group of spinner sharks, and and they knew they were there, and they went out anyway. And all I talked to all I talked to a bunch of the surfers, and the surfers were like, "Yeah, we knew they were there. We just didn't care." But when it got reported in the news, and the only language you have is shark attack, eleven shark attacks at one beach in one day. That's when the, the, the wheels of policy uh, churn and they banned as a knee-jerk response to a problem that didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's very much, it, it seems like in, in, in very different cases, there's more to it than just responding to uh, a series of shark incidents or shark accidents or shark bites. Um, you know, and it's the same with, with policies everywhere is that there's, it's never just as straightforward as this is a problem. So we're going to do this to solve it. There's often, you know, a lot other things going on. And I kind of wanted to wrap it up with, you know, where, where do we, where do we go from here? So how, how can we build on that momentum and continue to move away from that framing of shark attack, man killer, um, and sort of encourage less emotional responses to shark bites. I guess that's it's quite a big question, and <laughs> so tackle it how, however you however you like. So statistically, the number one way to, based on my research, um, ba- the number one way to reduce public fear of sharks is to disrupt messages around intentionality. Public fear of sharks is predicated on the assumption that was put forward by uh, Malcolm Hazen and Victor Koppelson that sharks are intentional in their attack on humans. That's why attack is so visceral, right? It means intentional. So when you disrupt the way intentionality is thought, so when you talk about shark accidents or when you talk about other shark bites or other sort of natural phenomenon, um, you reduce public fear about sharks. Intentionality is the number one variable that um, triggers fight or flight, right? Because if someone's, there was a study that was done where they, um, they put like electrodes in someone's brain and they watched someone on a hill. Somebody is uh, pushed down the hill and the electrodes go crazy and then the person falls down the trips and falls down the hill and nothing happens right we are we are we are primates when intentionality happens we seek to defend ourselves from that 
and it raises our alarm. Intentionality is really the my big takeaway from all probably all the research I've ever done that that this language that reinforces intentionality that sharks intentionally come after people um, is incredibly damaging to uh, shark conservation in the long term. And and yeah, it kind of harks back to that sort of you know the rogue shark theory, the idea that they are intentionally seeking us out. I mean, I still see it. Uh, I do a lot of guiding in Scotland and I still see it when we're heading out to see the Baskin sharks sometimes. And people worry that as soon as they drop into the water, that all the sharks are all of a sudden just going to turn around and go, oh, hmm, interesting, human. Um, and we still have that, that very much that perception that, you know, animal behavior, we're seeing it with the orca. I don't know if you've seen, it's really interesting with the orca that are sort of taken on the, the yachts in Portugal. You're seeing a lot of that language being used and that we're imagining or we're kind of putting our own motivations onto them and imagining that they're actually doing it as a way to get back at us or, you know, with with sort of intention behind it. And it's making people be really emotional around that whole thing. I completely understand the emotion. It must be pretty terrifying having a, you know, huge multi-ton orca ram your yacht repeatedly and the same thing with a shark but you know it's at the end of the day you know it's not quite always it's not what it seems to be and if you can sort of take the emotion out of it and like you say the intentionality it helps people to have a little bit more of a measured response to that i've you know the the take the alternative narrative that i put forward is that we're in the way not on the menu. And I think that is much closer to reality than any of these other movie myths that we've talked about. Absolutely. And that is a fantastic soundbite to bring the podcast to a close. I'm just very conscious that I've kept you talking for way longer than I said I was going to. I could honestly pick your brains all day about this. We do have one final question. uh, And that is, if you could be any species of shark, ray, or skate in the world, what would you be and why? Goblin shark. Because they're so, so, I mean, like, if you were going to pick, right, like, I'm saying goblin shark, and they've got, A, they've got the best name of any shark, so the goblin shark. And then you've got, you pick, and Halloween's my favorite uh, holiday, so, like, you know, you meet Goblin Shark all day. That's your, it's your outfit. You're Goblin Shark every day. Um, and, and, you know, I just think that they also possibly are, like, incredibly redeemable sharks. Like, they're just, they're, you know, they're just doing their own thing. They're going around. If, if you're listening to this, Google Goblin Shark and see what pops up. And there you know what I'm talking about. They feature quite heavily on our last episode. We had uh, Vicky Vicky Vasquez, uh, Annabelle Gong, and Britt Fenucci came on to talk about weird and obscure species, and the goblin shark was featured. They're also pink, which is just the best thing ever. Like, why would you not want to be a, a pink deep sea shark? Barbie. <laughs> Barbie, exactly. Very topical. Very topical. Um, but anyway, I, I'm keeping you from your dinner, so... Just want to say a massive thank you for such a fascinating conversation for all your time. And yeah, this has been this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on, Chris. Oh, it's my pleasure. This is great. Wonderful to chat with you. 
The World of Sharks podcast was brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. It was produced by me, Ayla Hodgson. Our amazing visuals are by Jamie Silver. Nicola Poulos created our lovely logo. And the wonderful jingle you can hear right now is by David Knight. An enormous thank you to Chris for their time and expertise. You can follow them on Twitter. They are at Pepin underscore Neff. And we will leave links to their work in the show notes on the World of Sharks website as always. So please do go and check them out. And thank you at home for listening. As always, if you want to pitch us your burning question to an actual world leading expert like Chris or want us to cover a topic, or you just want to say hi, we love hearing from you, so please do get in touch. You can email Isla at SaveOurSeas.com or get in touch on social media. We are at Foundation on TikTok and Instagram and at SaveOurSeas on Twitter. And if you liked this episode, how about leaving us a rating and review? We'd really appreciate that. It helps more people to find us and find out about how amazing sharks are and who doesn't want that? Alrighty, have a jawsome week and we will see you next time.